0: Margie, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today with Todd, where we're going to talk about the Pulse survey results and some of the takeaways there, and also some of the new things we're seeing on the policy front. There's a lot going on with President Biden's tax proposals and also with the widened White Paper and many other areas.
1: That's right, Julie. And for those of us that really enjoyed the TCJA roller coaster, this biden widen train is leaving the station and I can't wait for the ride. So with that, Let's talk tax.
0: You're listening to Tap into Tax, PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative and technology hot topics through the lens of our technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists.
1: This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Tap into Tax.
0: This is Julie Allen. I'm PwC's National Tax Service Market Leader and Tax M&A National Practice Leader. And joining me today is my co-host, Margie Dunjashaw. PwC's U.S. Tax Reporting and Strategy and East Region Leader. On today's episode of Tap into Tax, we're excited to welcome Todd Metcalf, a principal in our tax policy services practice, who is here today to discuss the latest happenings from the Hill and how that connects with what we learned companies are prioritizing in our latest PwC Pulse survey. So Todd, let's lead with the top two proposals that are getting all of the buzz in the international tax community. President Biden's $2.25 billion infrastructure plan, and Senator Wyden's international tax framework. When you put both of those in a sentence, it can be a real tongue twister. So your history on the Hill should really make this conversation interesting. We are hearing a lot of buzzwords like country by country, guilty, FDII changes, and minimum tax. Can you distill those for us and give companies some guidance on how to view all of these together?
2: Absolutely, Julie. Thank you for having me. There's a lot of focus on international tax. And I'm going to start really with the most recent document that we've seen, that is Senator Wyden's white paper. As chairman of the Finance Committee, he's going to play a leading role in the development of the tax changes, any tax changes that we see this year or in the coming years. And so his white paper is important and it's called Overhauling International Taxation. And what I can say, after working with him as his chief tax counsel for seven years, this document, as shocking as it may be, and maybe horrifying in some ways to some of our, the companies we work with, it actually shows a great deal of evolution. It's also important from my mind to note that he's joined in the White Paper by Senators Brown and Warner. And the reason that that's an important thing to note Is that Senator Brown is one of the most progressive senators in the United States Senate. And Senator Warner is known as being one of those moderate centrists that we're hearing so much about. So I think that this white paper, even though it's vague, really begins to represent what a consensus might look like among Democrats in the Senate. And so I think that makes it a document of some consequence. So what are they talking about doing? They're focusing on guilty, as you mentioned. They're talking about eliminating that QBI exemption. QBI apparently is no one's friend, has made no friends since it entered the tax code when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was enacted. QBI is proposed to be eliminated by Senator Wyden's document, as well as the Biden administration's proposal. So QBI looks like it's on life support at the moment. He talks about guilty in the context of obviously what the Biden administration has proposed, which is a... 25% deduction down from that 50% deduction that we see today. But he leaves open the question of exactly where that guilty rate should fall. He says historically, we've seen Democratic tax proposals that proposed minimum taxes at 60% of the the headline rate up to 100%. When Democrats and Republicans worked together on international tax reform in 2015 and 16, where they had consensus was really around the 25% rate, and they talked a lot about a 15% minimum tax. So that's where that 60% number comes in. And then 100%, that would be Senator Wyden's own a proposal from 10 years ago, where he suggested that the easiest way to rationalize the international system was to have a worldwide system without deferral. Another important development and potentially divergence in this guilty discussion is The Biden administration obviously has talked about having a country-by-country measure of guilty. The Wyden paper raises that issue, but it also makes the point that maybe that's not the best way to go. Maybe that's not the most efficient way to address the challenge that they're trying to fix. And so what do they say? They say, well, perhaps we could have a two-basket approach, a high-tax basket and a low-tax basket. And that makes sense because the arguments that Democrats have been making are about how companies are leveraging their high tax operations and income to sort of disguise the amount of low tax income that they're earning. And so by separating these two, a high tax basket, a low tax basket, that sort of eliminates in many ways, I think, in the mind of Senator Wyden, the ability for that averaging issue that they've identified. They also say that they would treat research and management as entirely domestic expenses. And so this is another important development. We'll see over and over again in this the the significance of research and innovation. FDII, another divergence from the Biden proposal. The Biden proposal is to eliminate FDII. The Biden proposal says, you know what, not so fast. Maybe what we need to do is rethink the FDII provision and instead of having it relate to deemed intangible income. Maybe it should be deemed innovation income and really focus on U.S. activities like R&D, worker training, and other things that reflect greater investment in the United States. There's also a hint, it's just a hint, that maybe we're moving in the direction of something closer to a traditional innovation box. And I think that's also potentially a good development that might offset some of the more negative aspects of the proposals. On the BEAT, there's a discussion about allowing the full value of domestic business credits, which has come up sort of consistently in some of the criticism, both from Democrats and Republicans, about how the BEAT works, addressing foreign tax credit issues, but also kind of trying to keep all of the changes to the BEAT within that BEAT framework, And perhaps where there are positive adjustments, maybe relaxations of BEAT, you might see some tightening. They reference a higher rate potentially for certain base eroding payments, but they're looking at BEAT where they would make all the changes within that context. And that's also sort of important because they're not offsetting BEAT changes with other changes elsewhere. So try to keep everything tight within that space. The Biden administration, I've talked a little bit about what they've been proposing, not a lot of changes there, except I would note that Treasury released a document April 7th where they more fully explain their proposal to increase the corporate rate from 21 to 28%, to increase the guilty tax rate to 21%, apply guilty on a per country basis, and eliminate QBI, to replace BEAT with a provision to deny certain deductions to increase anti-inversion provisions in law, to deny deductions for expenses relating to offshoring jobs, and provide a complementary tax credit for onshoring, to repeal FDII. And again, this one, this big one, they reiterate the need for a tax on global book income. And that's something that I know that will be troubling, and it is troubling to a number of the companies we talked to. They're not backing off of that. They have made some modifications. They seem to be saying, well, this would only apply to very large corporations in excess of $2 billion or larger corporations, I should say, with in excess of $2 billion. It's not exactly clear what that means for some of the companies we talked to. The document indicates that maybe that means that this minimum tax would only apply to 45 of the very largest corporations. But again, details are lacking, so it's hard to predict exactly where this is going. But you see both alignment between Congress in the Biden and Biden approaches, but also some divergence and some situations where moderates clearly are having an effect on the outcome of the policy.
1: So, Todd, as these proposals are coming down the pike, let's look at the other side of the equation. Even with the uncertainty, companies cannot stop and wait, but they need to push forward with their business agendas. We see ESG initiatives receiving a lot of spotlight on many companies' agendas. So when you're looking at the ESG grocery list of proposals that also came out recently, what should clients be focused on from a policy and operational perspective?
2: ESG is all the talk, all the rage, and the Biden administration is making clear on not a daily basis, but on a pretty regular basis, that they're going to be focused on some of these metrics. clearly. We know based on the fact that their first big bill, this big infrastructure bill, is focused a lot on climate change, on clean energy. We know they're going to be focused on that E bit of ESG, and they're going to roll out ways to measure that for companies. There's also clearly, with all the focus on tax avoidance, on their view that companies aren't paying their fair share, et cetera, et cetera, we know that there's likely to be a significant focus, a significant metric. Associated with governance on the total tax contribution, et cetera, et cetera. What this administration is basically saying is we understand, as the World Economic Forum and others that have sort of pioneered this ESG concept, we understand that things that get measured get done. And so they are going to use the powers that they have from an administrative perspective throughout the agencies, whether it's the IRS, Treasury, SEC, EPA, on down the line they're going to ensure that these metrics are measured because their view is, if they're not measured, then you're not going to have positive movement advancing the ball in the direction of whether it's a cleaner economy, a more fair economy, a more equitable economy. All of these things are critically important. And this administration really believes that we have to measure these things in order to see advancement. I think companies need to be modeling and planning for these proposed changes they need to be thinking about what some of these metrics are going to look like if they're forced to disclose them and they're going to have to begin to adjust perhaps some of their behaviors and their decisions based on that and so in the notion of tax they're going to have to enhance the tax department what we saw in the pulse survey is that almost half 49 percent of tax leaders understand and see the value of enhancing the tax department operating model. Because without the proper tools, without enhancing their operations, they're not going to be able to develop and measure the metrics that are increasingly important for companies in this new environment with this new renewed focus on ESG.
0: Todd, a couple of the points that you highlighted there are really key, not only in the current corporate environment, but also in a deals environment. You highlighted the importance of operating models and also of considering ESG and really taking into account your metrics and measuring those metrics. Those are key in a deals environment just as they are in the corporate environment that we're seeing right now. I wanna pivot for a minute to a couple of points that you've made And one of those main points is really with respect to bipartisan activity with the legislation. And Todd, for many months, we've been discussing whether lawmakers can find any bipartisan common ground when it comes to tax legislation. And we also talked about what proposals would be likely and whether those would have to pass through a reconciliation process. So what do the recent proposals reveal and how do they tie into this process and how do you think that is going to play out?
2: Well, we have what might be described as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Congress, depending on what you view as good or bad. But we're going to have a lot of Dr. Jekyll moments where we have bipartisanship. That's where the good side of things sort of show through. Look, I think infrastructure, that's an area where there is clearly a lot of bipartisan interest and support. We saw Senator Roy Blunt, Republican of Missouri, on the Sunday shows recently saying, look, I'm for infrastructure. I want to work toward a big infrastructure package and even threw out a number of $600 billion on real infrastructure. Well, if you look at the number on roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, etc., in the $2 trillion proposal, the Biden proposal, that $650, $700 billion of that is those things. So there's an indication that there's some bipartisan support. The Mr. Hyde moment, however, comes where we sort of shift off this bipartisanship is. Are we going to pay for it? And if we're going to pay for it, how are we going to pay for it? And if we're going to talk about tax increases, then that's where the bipartisanship sort of goes out the window and where we're going to go down, likely to go down this reconciliation path. However, Senator Manchin, who seems to be the most powerful man in the United States Senate at the moment, he has said he thinks they've got to try really hard to find some bipartisan common ground on infrastructure and on some other things before he's willing to just jump right into the reconciliation path. So we also saw President Biden indicating a desire to find a negotiated compromise, understanding that a negotiated compromise on infrastructure might be the best way to ensure that we have a sustainable policy. So there's some at least spoken signs of a desire for bipartisanship, but again, whether these things have to be paid for and how they're paid for is gonna really be a catch. There's another area, though, of bipartisan support that we're seeing sort of crop up in different hearings and different comments. And that is on the changes to Section 174, where we'll go from expensing to amortization on January 1, 2022, and on 163J, where we will lose the DAW, as it were, and go to an EBIT standard without congressional action. We're already seeing in hearings and other things, both Democrats and Republicans talking about how... Allowing those policy changes to take effect would be detrimental to growth, would slow investment, particularly in areas that are important to the administration, like clean energy, like broadband infrastructure, et cetera. Both of those changes would have negative effects on that. So that's another area where we might see some bipartisan coming together is on maintaining current policy on interest expense and research and development expenses.
1: So, Todd, as we're putting together the pieces of this tax puzzle, a couple of weeks ago, the Senate Finance Committee also had a hearing on international tax where there was a lot of testimony and policy debate, including from the top Biden policymakers in the Treasury Department. So how can we interpret what we heard and what insight did we get from that hearing on the direction of travel for Congress and compared to the direction of travel for the administration?
2: Well, I have to say, when I watched that hearing, I left that hearing, and I'm a Democrat, that's my background, but I left that hearing quite concerned because it almost seemed as though Republicans and Democrats during that hearing were not just speaking different languages, they were from different planets. They were talking past each other. There didn't seem to be a lot of understanding of the other's concerns, which you frequently see, even though congressional hearings can be contentious. Frequently, you'll see moments of at least some agreement or acknowledgement of the other side's issues. We didn't see that. And so I left that hearing quite worried about the direction that international tax might take. But then I have to say, as I mentioned earlier, that when Senator Wyden released that white paper earlier this week, I actually breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief because that document, as I mentioned shows a level of evolution, a level of development, and certainly a level of willingness to compromise that we hadn't previously seen and certainly was not reflected in the tone of that hearing. So, again, we're not out of the woods. I think there's still a lot of partisan rancor that we're going to have to negotiate and navigate. I think that white paper on Monday was really, like I said, it was a relief to see that there still is some willingness to talk, some willingness to compromise in order to find perhaps a workable, reasonable solution.
1: Now, as far as engagement, with tax-increased legislation at the forefront of many of these proposals, our Pulse survey revealed that two-thirds of tax leaders are prioritizing their planning in anticipation of rising tax rates. However, only 37% of tax leaders responded that engaging with policymakers and stakeholders on tax policy was a priority for them. So what is the message you're conveying to clients right now about the importance of engagement?
2: Margie, I'm so glad you asked that question. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of taxpayers, of companies engaging with policymakers now. There's a train moving. It's not exactly clear When it's going to leave the station, it's not exactly clear how fast it's going to go to its destination, but the train is getting ready to move. And so companies need to be engaged with policymakers. They need to be telling their stories. They need to be making the case that some of the changes that are proposed or all the changes that are proposed. However, they affect their taxpayer profile. They need to be showing that this will adversely affect investment in the United States, investment in their districts job growth, wages, they need to be making that case because otherwise what will prevail are the sensationalistic headlines that policymakers read in the newspapers that don't reflect the reality. And certainly we know that news writers, editorialists, they're not tax experts, or at least not all of them are. So sometimes they get some of it right and some of it wrong, but it's important that taxpayers tell their story. Tax leaders should be prioritizing planning and investment strategy because that's obviously at the core of their job. But right now, they have to be thinking about how these tax law changes may affect them. And if they're going to affect them in a meaningful way, they need to be telling that story to lawmakers and they need to be telling it now.
1: There are a lot of things on our company's to-do list. So apart from the focus on potential legislation, companies are also focused on enhancing their tax department operating model with almost half, 49% of the tax leaders we surveyed noting it as a key priority. Then we're also hearing a lot about the future of work. It's impacts on intellectual property, permanent establishment, but then there's also significant considerations from both a regulatory and a technical tax perspective when you're thinking about the future of work. So can you talk about some of the drivers behind this priority and what issues companies should be thinking about?
2: Absolutely, Margie. Companies are evaluating the effects of the pandemic on their internal operations, including various tax functions. And they're determining what processes, technology, and resourcing models could be improved. The pandemic had a huge effect on all of our work lives and on how we operate, how we interact with each other's tax departments are no different. Companies are also considering different tax operating models to fit their changing workforce and technology needs, as well as new ways of working post-pandemic. Clearly, the pandemic has shown us that we can work, we can be efficient in different ways. And these operating models that the tax leaders are considering include in-house, co-sourced, outsourced, and managed service models. Another thing that I think that companies are thinking about a lot is supply chains. Supply chains continue to be a concern for companies as the geopolitical landscape is changing, as the tax law landscape, obviously, is changing in not just the United States, but across the globe. And trade tensions remain an ever-present threat. And so supply chains also need to be considered as tax leaders sort of think about the future.
0: And Todd, I think a few of those points that you mentioned, operating models, future of work and supply chain are going to continue to be hot topics as we continue through the next little while as we're looking at legislation and continue throughout working through the pandemic. But Todd, President Biden released an executive order calling for a review of Vulnerabilities in US supplies of critical technologies, metals, and pharmaceuticals, and the impact that that could have and the long term implications for US businesses. And I think that ties right into what you were talking about, about supply chains and operating models. So maybe could you give us some insight on how companies can be proactive in their response, including from a tax lens?
2: Certainly, Julie. While nothing may change dramatically in the short term, Companies have to take a longer view. If the pandemic taught us anything, it is that there are weaknesses in the system. There are points in the supply chain that aren't as strong as others, and companies need to take that longer view. They need to be thinking about, well, what if the what if scenarios need to be laid out more clearly? A few weeks ago, the Senate Finance Committee held a hearing regarding the effects of the U.S. tax code on domestic manufacturing, where several tax proposals were discussed. And Chairman Wyden importantly noted that there is bipartisan interest in building up our domestic manufacturing to bolster the supply, among other things, of semiconductors and other critical components and products. Chairman Wyden also mentioned specifically electric vehicle batteries. And so there's a lot of emphasis on innovation, on increasing innovation, on increasing R&D activity, et cetera, in the United States. There's also increasing interest in ensuring that we have the critical supplies that are necessary so that the United States, in a future pandemic, in a future crisis of some other kind, the United States is on sure footing. And policymakers are focused on trying to develop a tax code as well as a trade policy that will help ensure that. And companies need to be thinking along those same lines and, again, engaging with policymakers so that the policy goals and the companies and the and others that are going to have to meet those goals are best aligned.
1: So, Todd, we've given our listeners so much to think about. And frankly, it's a little tough and can be confusing as to what to do. So what are some of the things you think companies should be doing right now?
2: Well, first, as I mentioned, with all these tax changes being discussed, being proposed almost on a weekly basis, by the White House, by the administration, by Congress, tax leaders, company leaders need to be engaged with policymakers. They need to be following or have someone following proposed policy changes. They need to be modeling and planning for these proposed changes. And it's not just U.S. tax rates that may be rising. Companies with global operations will also need to plan for potential tax rate changes in other countries. As we mentioned earlier, The UK government recently announced that it intends to raise the 19% corporations tax to 25% for large businesses starting in April 23. So the tax action is not just in the United States. It's all around the globe. Tax leaders also need to be prepared to share data-driven insights with lawmakers, especially on the effect of potential country-by-country guilty rates and an increased U.S. corporate rate. Given all of the recent conversations, a changed landscape in these areas is Almost beyond a possibility, I think that changes to our tax system are almost a certainty at this point. And what that looks like will depend a lot on that engagement. They should also be working with the C-suite to create a narrative, both for purposes of engaging with legislators and the public, on tax transparency. The increased pressure that is happening both on voluntary and mandatory tax transparency is going to create a need to have a consistent story and to have a narrative that is understandable around tax strategy for companies.
1: Todd, as always, thank you for joining us on this episode of Tap into Tax. I'm sure we will have you back in the coming weeks as we move a little bit closer to a final bill. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We look forward to engaging with you as we tap into tax.